This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Greetings, Bonzi. Remember me, Mork from Ork? You once called me the nutso from outer space. This week, we saw a public outpouring of grief after actor and comedian Robin Williams took his own life. He had a lifelong struggle with depression and substance abuse, and these problems contribute to a higher suicide rate among Zoomers. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Benoit Moussin from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health to learn more. Plus... You might be a morning person, even if you don't know it. A new study finds that Zoomers' brains are wired to work better in the morning than in the afternoon. John Anderson, the study author, will join us in just a bit. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There have been many complaints over Canada Post's plans to phase out door-to-door mail delivery. But now the organization says you can keep your home delivery if you have a note from your doctor. But doctors beg to differ. The president of the Canadian Medical Association slammed this plan, saying it demonstrates a complete lack of awareness of the challenges facing healthcare professionals and patients. Susan Ang of CARP simply called it idiotic. Here's an added benefit from living in this high-tech age. Being digitally literate could help stave off cognitive decline. Researchers in Brazil looked at data from over 6,400 British adults over the age of 50 who were followed for eight years as part of the English Longitudinal Study on Aging. They found that digital literacy increases brain and cognitive reserves and also leads to the employment of more efficient cognitive networks to delay decline. The study is published in the Journals of Gerontology. When was the last time someone said you should be eating more salt? For years, we've been told that we're consuming far too much sodium, but new research suggests that not enough is just as bad as too much. Researchers followed participants in a large international study for four years. They found that people who consumed more than 6,000 milligrams of sodium daily and people who consumed less than 3,000 milligrams daily both had higher risks of dying from heart attacks and strokes. The study is controversial. Health Canada recommends only 1,500 milligrams of sodium a day. And the medical community stands by that lower guideline. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. 
Lauren Bacall, a leading actress from Hollywood's golden days, passed away at the age of 89 after suffering a stroke in her New York City apartment. She's best known for her roles in films such as Key Largo, How to Marry a Millionaire, The Big Sleep, and The Mirror Has Two Faces. In 1944, Bacall made her on-screen debut with Humphrey Bogart in To Have and Have Not. The two married soon after and remained together until Bogart's death in 1957. Lauren Bacall is survived by her three children. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Are you a morning person? If you're a Zoomer, you probably are whether you know it or not. A new study out of Baycrest finds that older adults perform much better in the morning than in the afternoon. Researcher John Anderson dropped by our Liberty Village studios to explain. There has been lots of behavioral evidence from both our lab and from other labs showing that older adults, if you bring them in and you have them do a bunch of cognitive tests on the computer or paper and pencil tasks, tend to do better in the morning. And if you bring them in and you, you know, these same people in the afternoon, uh, they tend to do much, much worse. And we think that this is behind a lot of the age differences that people tend to observe because graduate students like myself and uh, research assistants tend to like to test people in the afternoon when they are most awake. And by doing this, you might accentuate age differences. What exactly do you mean by older adults, and and what was the cohort in your survey? Okay, so what I mean by older adults, um, it does vary by study, but generally in the field it's agreed that people who are over 65 up until about 80, um, that is the, the sample that we're dealing with, and that is the sample that we are studying in our particular study. Once you get past 80, then that's the older old adults. So even people at 65, which is not particularly old, will perform better in the morning? That is correct, on average. Right now you have your morning people, mm-hmm. of which I am not one. Oh, okay. And you have your uh, later-in-the-day people. So will somebody who was not a morning person to begin with become a morning person as they age? Um, typically that is the case, yes. Um, there is evidence that the suprachiasmatic nucleus and other regions in the brain that are responsible for setting circadian rhythms actually start to degrade. And as they start to degrade people's circadian rhythms, that is the rhythms that govern the, the morningness or eveningness propensity starts to shift and they become morning types. This is true for most people, although some people like yourself and other people might remain evening types for much longer than is average. Morning people are, are better at performing tasks. Are mm-hmm. you talking about mental tasks? Are you talking about physical tasks or both? We're talking about both. The types of things that we're talking about that do show time of day differences in terms of cognition are those types of tasks that cannot be done automatically. So driving is not something that typically would show uh, time of day effects unless somebody were to jump out um, and you had to respond because driving is normally, especially among older adults, something that is incredibly automatic. They've been doing it for years. Um, They're very good at it. They're better on average than younger adults because they've got more practice. If, however, they have to suddenly react to something that is incredibly novel and requires all of their executive uh, attention, um, they might not react in time, and that might show the time of day differences that we're interested in and and have studied. What are the kinds of mental tasks that people should think about doing in the morning? Oh, the kinds of mental tasks. Um, So anything that involves working with numbers, um, anything that involves 
let's say, uh, a test, if you have to remember something, um, if you know that you're going to go to um, a doctor's appointment and you want to remember all of the symptoms that you have to bring up, or if you want to remember what the doctor says... Write it down. <laughs> that would be one way to do it, but if you were relying just on your memory, then uh, the morning might be a better time to do that. What about uh, playing your tennis game? Your tennis game? Well, yes, older adults, if they're tested at their optimal time of day, will perform better physically as well. If there's something important that, that you tested on in the afternoon, like a driver's test or, mm -hmm. or something like that, should you go back and redo it in the morning? If you didn't do so well in the afternoon, yes. If you're going in to assess somebody for something like dementia, um, testing them in the afternoon might not be the best idea. Testing them in the morning would give you and the physician a better picture of what that person is actually capable of. For a more general audience, basically anything that you have to do that is demanding, um, that you think would require effort and you can't do just on automatic pilot, try and schedule it in the morning. Okay. That's a pretty easy takeaway. Thank you so much, John Thank Anderson. Thank you so much. I'm Libby Snymer and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. The tragic death of actor Robin Williams has created an international discussion about depression and mental health. It is a particular problem for Zoomers, and in just a moment I'll be joined by Dr. Benoit Mulsin, physician-in-chief at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. This week, Robin Williams' tragic death shone a light on depression, substance abuse, and suicide. And suicide is one of the top 10 causes of death for Zoomers. How can families recognize that a loved one is close to the edge? I reached Dr. Benoit Moussin. He is physician-in-chief and a specialist in geriatric psychiatry at CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Is there a connection with age? Do these problems become worse as we get older? Actually, older people in general are happier than younger people. And the prevalence of both depression and substance use is lower in older people than in younger people. However, there are people who are depressed in late life, and there are people like Robin Williams who have a fairly early onset of depression and or substance use, and they battle them through their life, and they lose the battle uh, when they are older. But now there are some diseases, like for instance stroke and some other neurogenitive disease that predispose people who have never been, or Alzheimer's disease who have never been depressed during their life to develop depression For someone who has had depression and substance abuse problems throughout their lives, does it get worse as they age? So, again, for, for some people it does, and for some it doesn't. And there are some people who actually do not uh, reach a remission. And yes, as they age, as they become more lonely, as they battle aging, as you mentioned earlier, they have additional stressors linked to their mental, their physical health or their financial situation for whom depression moves from being a, an episodic treatable illness to become more chronic, more treatment resistant, and therefore 
more severe and putting them at higher risk of suicide. And that's why older people as a group have a higher rate of death from suicide than, for instance, younger people. We also heard this week that he was seeking treatment for another bout of depression when this happened. In general, treatment for depression tend to be very efficacious, and the people who do not respond to treatment are a small subgroup. What happens is most, but for some patients, you need to have two. It's a trial and error approach, and you need two or three different trials before we can identify the treatment that helped them. Many people give up before uh, the right treatment is found for them. And why do they give up on the treatment? Are they difficult to tolerate? Not necessarily. The treatment for depression have side effects, but they are probably no worse and maybe even better than for medication that people take for hypertension or heart disease or or definitely better than the medication for cancer. I think part of the, the, there there are several issues, but one symptom of depression is hopelessness. So some people do not even start treatment or give up on treatment or refuse the treatment that are offered to them by their doctors because part of their symptom is to be hopeless and they are convinced that nothing can help them and the treatment will not work. In the case of Robin Williams, what's interesting is everybody is focusing on the depression. People tend to kind of uh, ignore or not talk about the substance abuse, which in in this case was alcoholism, it appears, and which uh, tend to be even more stigmatized than depression. And, and I'm not talking necessarily of Robin Williams, since, as I say, I don't know his specific circumstances, but in general, even depressed people, it's very hard for most human beings to take their own life and to kill themselves. And, but when there is a substance abuse and people are intoxicated and are disinhibited, then there is a much higher rate of completed suicide. What can families look for? Is there some kind of sign that people can look for to know that somebody is close to the edge, that that they're at a crisis point? So there is a literature about prevention of suicide in older people, and not surprisingly, the first thing is to uh, detect and treat depression. So if somebody... And older people tend not to complain necessarily like younger people or feeling low. They may not be crying. They may not have the depressed mood or the depressed affect. Uh, and more often than not, depression in older people manifests itself by lack of pleasure. They stop engaging in things that they used to do and enjoy. And they may blame it on their physical condition. But, for instance, a man who used to love baseball and watch baseball game on TV or love reading the paper and uh, being interested in politics, who stopped doing this for no good reason, or a woman who no longer uh, seems to be engaged when the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren visit, and they say, I'm too tired, I'm no longer interested. That may be uh, a symptom of depression. The first thing to do is to ask the person. Most people who are suicidal are ambivalent about it, and when they are asked, how do you feel? Do you feel so bad that uh, you feel like giving up? Do you feel so bad that you wish you would fall asleep but not wake up? Do you sometimes pray that God will call you? Does it reach the point that, that uh, sometimes you start thinking of actually taking your own life or killing yourself? When you ask people, most people who are actually depressed and suicidal will answer and say yes. And then 
it's really a medical emergency. I would imagine it would be very difficult to ask that question to your parent, to your grandparent. Um, can you again suggest how to broach that subject? It can be done in a sensitive way. Dad, you know, it seems that things have really been very hard for you and you seem a little bit down in the dump. Do you ever feel so bad uh, that you feel like giving up? I almost always, it's part of any uh, psychiatric assessment, uh, ask that question. And there are some people who get offended. They say, oh, that's a terrible question. Certainly not. So I like it when people get offended that I ask the question. Okay, Dr. Mousson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can find more information about depression and mental illness by visiting camh.ca. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. This weekend marks the 45th anniversary of the most famous music festival of the Zoomer generation. Coming up, we'll remember Woodstock. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. In New York City, Emmy and Golden Globe-nominated Julia Stiles stars alongside James Wirt in a dark romantic comedy called Phoenix. It's about the tense dynamics between a man and a woman after a one-night stand. Phoenix is playing at the Cherry Lane Theater. In Los Angeles, an exhibition called The Scandalous Art of James Enzer is at the Getty Museum. It features works of the 19th century artist who was embraced by his native Belgium as an international celebrity. But in the 1880s and 1890s, the young Enzer was a scandalous and defiant figure, and his paintings reflect this. To London, England, where Rufus Bonds Jr. and Nicola Hughes star in Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. It's getting rave reviews at the open-air theater in Regent's Park. And in Rome, an exhibition on the life and work of Mexican artist Frida Kahlo is on display until the end of the month. Kahlo is a symbol of the artistic avant-garde and Mexican culture in the 20th century. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This weekend marks the 45th anniversary of one of the most iconic cultural events of the Zoomer generation, Woodstock. The festival, held on a farm in Woodstock, New York, kicked off on Friday, August 15, 1969. For three and a half days, nearly half a million people enjoyed peace, love, and music while the rain poured down on them. Performers included Janis Joplin, The Who, Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Band, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, The Grateful Dead, Joe Cocker, and Jimi Hendrix. One person who was not at Woodstock was Canada's Joni Mitchell. She skipped the festival to appear on The Dick Cavett Show. But that did not stop her from capturing the spirit of the festival in song. She based her lyrics on what her then-boyfriend, Graham Nash, told her about his experiences at the event. Later... Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young would go on to record the song and make it a hit. Here they are with Woodstock. Well, 
That was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young with Woodstock. This weekend marks the 45th anniversary of the famous music festival. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Knight. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.